Flight cancellations hit O'Hare and Midway as a winter storm moves through the Midwest. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about local housing news, including how the usual winter home sales slowdown is back with a vengeance and how house prices in the city dropped in January. We're looking at homes that closed in January. Most of those decisions to buy, most of those deals were negotiated November, December, possibly even October, when the fear was really at its worst. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, February 23rd. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. As ever, lots of things to get into. Let us start, though, Dennis, by talking about uh, winter home sales. We usually kind of see a little bit of a, of a slump there. What, what, what are we seeing so far? It's been pretty remarkable. The January data came out this week. And as everybody has expected, of course, home sales were way down in January 2023, compared to January 22 and 21, which were the boom years. No big surprise, sales down about 40%. Uh, but what, what I looked at is, let's look at the years before, let's look at the old normal before the new normal, the years before COVID. Um, so I looked at January 2016 to 2020, and home sales, the, the way uh, the data comes from Illinois Realtors, it's broken down for the city and then the nine county metro area. Both of those figures are down about 25% from the average for the five years for the January in the five years leading up to the COVID, uh, the, the housing boom that was launched by COVID and then fueled by interest rates. So what that means is uh, not only have we, you and I have talked about how seasonality has come back. Uh, the, the boom really broke the seasonality mold that things were just flying in the months when they hadn't previously, as well as in all other months. Um, So not only has that cycle sort of returned, but it's returned with a vengeance. Um, We're seeing, well, so sales were down by 24 or 25%, 24 in the region, 25 in the city, compared to the five-year average. Um, And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that during the boom, we kind of depleted the desire to move. I mean, everybody who was going to move did. Everybody who was going to sell a house did. That's one big one. But another one plays into, I think we're going to talk about the city data and the big fact, and we can talk about that factor then. Yeah, actually, that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about the city. Yeah. So that was the number of sales and that that came out this week. But I also took a look at prices. Um, The home prices for the region have stayed flat for I think we're now at about 13 weeks. Home prices uh, in 2023, but also late 2022, have been flat with a year before, up up less than 1%, down less than 1%, or actually even week after week after week. 
And this is kind of interesting because um, prices were up so much during the boom. And yet our prices today are keeping pace with that. They're, They're not rising above, but they're also not dropping. And I think, and so again, I'm talking regionally now before we get to the city. And I think part of what's happening is they're being put, prices are being pushed down by the fact that my affordability has gone away as interest rates have, have risen, but they're being pushed up by the lack of inventory, because as I was talking about, it's all been depleted. And so the push down and the push up, it just sort of tends to go along flat. That is for the region. That's for the nine county metro area. Um, in the city, prices are down uh, 4%. And in the city, in city houses only, that's the real weak point. Prices were down. The median price of homes, houses sold in Chicago in January was down 10% from a year before. That's a big drop. That's the kind of drop they're seeing in the boom cities. And that follows two previous months when house prices were down. Uh, and this is, this is pretty worrisome, given that, again, prices in the whole region have stayed flat. But house prices in the city have dropped pretty dramatically. House prices, house sales in the city are about 10% of all of our metro area sales because there are also condos and townhouses sold in the city. And then, of course, all the suburbs. Um, And it seems that one of the reasons, um, let me put an asterisk on this before I say it, because I'm then going to contradict myself. But one of the key reasons is we're looking at homes that closed in January. Most of those decisions to buy, most of those deals were negotiated November, December, possibly even October, when the fear was really at its worst. Uh, interest rates were at their highest. Interest rates were twice what they had been a year before. They were really banging up against that peak of the very, very high sixes. Fear of a recession was very high. So it appears that people were, re- were really negotiating for lower prices. Now, the asterisk is that applies to our whole market. I have not been able to parse out. I've asked people, I've dug into my own head, I've looked at the numbers. I can't parse out why city houses are down so much. Um, those factors I just described would exp- explain that, but it, all, but it makes you wonder, what about the rest of the market? It may just be that houses in the city have lagged before everything else, that those buyers have more or were more susceptible to those two problems, but we don't yet know. And that's something that we've got to track over the course of the next few months. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, And it will be interesting to see how that kind of plays out and what story that tells in the months ahead for sure. Yeah. Well, so the data that has come in during January, which we'll be reporting in February, the weekly data, it already looks stronger than um, what we were seeing in than, than what we reported in January, which is, again, the December and November deals. So it may be that it may be that January turns out to be our low point, no guarantee, um, but, at it, but that's one possibility of what we'll be saying going forward over the course of the next several months. That's another thing we just have to put a pin in. I feel like there's so many pending stories that we have right now, Dennis, of like, well, we'll talk about that in a few months. We need to make make a chart of all the things we need to revisit. Oh, do you know how many spreadsheets I have hanging on my screen? Don't worry, Amy. I got you covered. I know you have a lot of spreadsheets. You are a spreadsheet guy. And and I know I am grateful for those spreadsheets because you do lots of math. So the rest of us do not have to, as I often say. Let's revisit a story that we talked about a while back about some developers in West Woodlawn. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, this is a, it's a really interesting group. They call it By the Block, B-U-Y, By the Block. Uh, it's a group of primary, young black developers. The idea is let's build in a group. Um, they each, they, they build their own individual projects, but let's all build near each other so that we make some real change to uh, their, their location now is the 63 and 6,400 blocks of Evans and a block of Langley right behind them. Um, but the idea is let's all build, they're building on Cook County Land Bank lots, lots that have been empty for, in some cases, decades. Uh, so let's make some real change. Let's make a cluster of change. Uh, and it, I think it was in June that I was down there to see them break ground on the first ones. They have uh, 11 lots on which they're building three flats because one of the things that is very traditional in Chicago housing, other cities as well, but it's a big deal in Chicago, is to buy a multi-flat building, two or three flat, and then uh, the owner's unit, the, the owner's mortgage is defrayed by the cost of renting. And at the same time, with these new buildings in Woodlawn, you're providing nice new rental housing. In I've been saying Woodlawn, and I need to say West Woodlawn. They're actually in West Woodlawn. Um, the project is called Woodlawn Point. Um, so you're providing nice new rental housing, uh, and just in general, sort of bringing the market up a notch or several. Well, the first four came on the market. One of them uh, went under contract very quickly, five days, um, had multiple offers, and uh, it hasn't closed yet, but the real estate agent was willing to confirm. I mean, those are the kinds of things where you assume, oh, it must be selling over the market, over the asking price, and she confirmed that it will. So quick sale, multiple offer, multiple bids. Um, and that's a really good sign because, you know, what they're doing is great, but there is risk, you know, especially because the market has changed. They're building in West Woodlawn. Can you sell these uh, $800,000 three flats? Um, there's a lot of market nearby. There are some townhouses in Woodlawn, Presidential Square, and others that have sold at prices like that. But here's a sign that this group can really make it happen. Um, first one has gone under contract. And as I said, it, we've got confirmation that it will sell for more than the asking price. Uh, and we'll see where there are three others on the market now. We'll see. They all came on the market in February, and it's still only February. Um, when they go out uh, under contract, we'll see what happens. And then, of course, there are, uh, there's a total of 11. They're, the ones that are not yet on the market are, according to one of the developers, 80 to 90 percent finished. So we ought to see all 11 on the uh, all 11 of them on the market within uh, the near future. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Already one really good sign, that one quick sale. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting idea for these developers to kind of pool their resources and, and go for impact rather than um, just kind of covering a large area. Yeah, I think well, impact is a great word because that's really the idea. You know, anybody who has wandered around places like Woodlawn, West Woodlawn, South Shore, Englewood, you see there are so many empty lots because of decades of disinvestment. And you think, well, you know, can a single piece of construction really fix this? But if we see, you know, I've done other stories on groups working in clusters and that really, it makes a big difference. You have more eyes on the street. We're all there. We, we're going to watch what's going on on the street. Um, I have neighbors there are, and, and there are fewer vacant lots. They're occupied by new buildings and vacant lots really can be a menace to a neighborhood. So it's, it's great to see this sort of thing happen. 
Yeah, another thing we'll revisit on a future episode of the podcast for sure. Let's now go to how about the Gold Coast and talk about uh, a Greystone formerly owned uh, by the uh, the ex Skyway boss. Yeah, this is an interesting building. Um, Fernando Redondo was the head of the Skyway for 16 years through uh, either two or three ownership entities. I think two. He uh, concurrently for eight years he also ran the Indiana Toll Road. Most people remember, most Chicagoans would remember that Mayor Daley privatized the Skyway for a deal that turned out to be very lucrative for the private entity, started out lucrative for the city, paid off a lot of debt, and then, but then was way better for the people who bought the deal. Um, Fernando Redondo was part of that original deal, and then when it was sold to another uh, leaseholder, he stayed with that group. So for 16 years, he ran the Skyway. And as I said, concurrently for eight years, he ran the Indiana Toll Road. Um, in 2006, bought this Greystone for $1.5 million. His wife, a real estate agent, spoke to me when they put it on the market a couple of years ago. She's a trained architect. She's a fan of Mies van der Rohe, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. She redid the interior, which I guess had been pretty run down, but she redid the interior at a very contemporary look. So you've got one of those 19th century Potter Palmer gray stones on the outside, and then this really gorgeous contemporary interior. As I said, they bought it for 1.5 million in 2006. They put it on the market at about 2.9 million, and then they just sold it last week for 2.6 million. Another place I want to talk about is a Spanish villa that's in Gray's Lake that is coming onto the market. This does not look like it would be in this area. This looks like this would be in California somewhere, but certainly not here. Yeah, and it doesn't even look like the houses around it. It's really interesting. This is this great 1920s villa, and it was used as more than a house. There were times when it had a school. You walk in through a courtyard, and then it has sort of a couple of wings They're all beautiful white stucco with tile roofs, different sizes, a couple of towers. It's certainly not, you know, it doesn't look like a single house that was put up at once, although it was, uh, everything you can see from the front was built at once in the 20s. It's got this great story. Um, There were, there was a couple, Frederick and Mary Dobe. They lived in Chicago. They were German immigrants. They got here or he got here. Uh, at the time of the first World's Fair, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. And one of the articles I found said he worked on it. He was a mechanical engineer. Uh, I don't know if she came then or came shortly after, but they had a daughter. And then uh, he runs a, he's got a, a correspondence school in the city, all sorts of other things. And then in the 20s, they buy this uh, country estate when people were doing that um, in what then was called Libertyville, but it, it became a piece of Gray's Lake. Uh, they bought this 180-acre estate. They build this villa on it. They also build a chauffeur's cottage and a barn. And um, he built lagoons and bridges. And it's just it apparently was just a fabulous 180-acre estate. Over the course of years, he does a lot of all the different things he did. He had, an, he had a correspondence school again here. He had a music school. Um, there are ads for drafting tables that he manufactured. There are old newspaper ads for drafting tables. He built a movie theater in Libertyville that at the time was like the coolest Art Deco movie theater you could ever find. It's been massively stripped down. It's still there, and now it's real ordinary. But at the time, it must have been a, an incredible showcase. Um, built a drive-in in Gray's Lake. He just had had his fingers in all these different things. 
And according to the current owners of the house, um, Dobe, oh, I'm sorry, and he had a tree farm on the 180 acres. And uh, according to the research of the current owners of the house, he may also have been running a sports betting operation. <laughs> this guy's busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When they moved in in the 90s, so he, he lived until 1960, and then later his daughter donates the house to Northwestern, and there are several uses, but then she and her husband buy the house in the mid-90s, and there were 50 phone lines, 50 landline phone lines in the house, and pulling on that thread, she determined that it's very likely that there was a sports betting operation going on. In wow. So he's got all these different businesses, but he builds this, they, he and his wife build this fantastic villa. And so like, why is there this sort of Mediterranean looking villa on this piece of farmland, former farmland in Gray's Lake? Well, she spoke to some of his uh, relatives. He of course has died, but there are descendants who said that, oh yeah, when they lived in Germany, and I think also when they lived in this country, they used to vacation on the Mediterranean. They're used to these beautiful white, uh, white stucco buildings with tile roofs, lots of openings to the outdoors to capture the breeze and really sort of live both indoors and outdoors. So it was built, it was built because he had all these different things he wanted to do, but it was built in the look it was because it was sort of a souvenir or a postcard of their um, uh, vacations on the Mediterranean. So this couple who've owned it since the 90s, uh, oh, sorry, I said it was 180 acre property. It's now eight. Um, there are a bunch of houses. It was uh, in, in beginning in 1960, it was developed as a subdivision called Arbor Vista, developed by a developer uh, who bought the land because Frederick Dobe died. Um, so this house is on eight acres. It has one of the lagoons that he dug. Uh, it also has a swimming pool. This family that bought it in 1996 has raised their kids and, you know, don't need a giant villa now just for the two of them. So they're putting it on the market March 1st at $875,000. It's got such an evocative history. There's so much to it. I love the 50 phone lines. I love that it was once 180 acres. I love that this guy had, yeah. of course he had a souvenir from his vacation time. The guy had 100 jobs, so he needed to like be reminded of his vacation. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. I love houses that have such interesting stories to them like that. I always think that's so interesting. And this one has been nicely preserved. The, the stories have been nicely preserved. I mean, the, the story really is the house. And what they've done is they've really they've kept all the beautiful old tile, both the tile floors and the clay tile roofs, twisted columns. It looks the the historical rooms look great. There's also a new kitchen and new bathrooms and things like that. And she said, the seller said to me, you know, why why would you buy an old house and then screw it up? You know, why don't you buy an old house and keep it looking old? And one of the things she liked, she said, is that um, that idea of going on vacation, this villa style has openings everywhere. There's an outdoor staircase. In one case, you walk up from the courtyard to one of the bedrooms out on an outdoor staircase. There are big arched windows from the living room, the two-story living room out to the gardens and the fountain. And she said, you know, it's a very spontaneous, very, very Mediterranean way of life. You sort of breeze in and breeze out and they've loved it very much. And what she said to me is, we hope we find somebody who loves it as much as we did the first day we walked in. Mm, I like that. Well, 
Here's hoping they, they find that person. All right, let's go to a mid-century modern that's in Lombard. I don't feel like we've talked about a mid-century for a while. For I, There was a stretch, Dennis. I feel like we talked about two a week, and then we, we kind of haven't talked about so many. But, but here's another one. Tell me about it. There haven't been as many come on the market. I think a lot of them trade privately because they're so popular um, that they never do come on the market. This one is, I mean, talking about houses with stories, this one just blows me away. Uh, you know, it's a nice, it's a perfectly nice mid-century modern house. It's got a stone fireplace, wood ceilings. They're asking $339,000. It's got, it's open to the outdoors, you know, perfectly nice mid-century modern house. But there's so much story to it. Um, it was designed by a woman architect in the mid-50s when there were almost no women who were architects. And it was built in a community built by her in a community that was intentionally a suburban community that was intentionally race blind, intentionally integrated. Like how many layers of story could there be? So let's talk about her first. Jean Werheim uh, was, she designed eight homes in this neighborhood called the York Center Community Co-op. One of them was her and her husband's house. And one was this one. I went back through old Tribune articles and they would write about her houses constantly because they were so cool. She built houses in um, in LaSalle County, North Shore, uh, several places. She built, uh, in the course of her career, I think she did 150 houses. Oh, wow. While working at her kitchen table, while working out of her home. Um, she and her husband were both architects. He did commercial work. She did houses. And I read an article in the Tribune where she said, well, yeah, it's a little sexist, but it was the 1950s. She said, yeah, you know, men like to do big, massive buildings. Women are suited. Women like me are suited to do houses. I know what I'm talking about when I design a kitchen, you know, so take that for 1950s language. Nevertheless, she built 150 houses, including this one. Um, One of the measures of just how rare she was is there's this book I refer to often, Modern in the Middle. It's really the definitive book on modernist houses in Chicago. And we have a lot of modernist houses in the Chicago area. There are 53 significant houses profiled in that book. One was by a woman architect, and that was a house by this woman, Jean Werheim. It's not this house. It's a house in Lamont. She really is a standout. And then the other thing that stands out is this race blind concept. Most of it, most of the sort of um, foundation of this happens before she builds the house. A lot of it is going on in the forties. This group of people get together. They were, many of them were members of the same church. They get together and they buy land that at the time was outside Lombard. Now it's been incorporated in and they want to build uh, a place where black people and white people can both own homes which was extremely rare in the suburbs in the 50s. Um, And it's working, except that because it's co-op ownership, they're having trouble getting government-guaranteed loans. This attracts the attention of an attorney, Thurgood Marshall, who much later, of course, is going to be on the Supreme Court, who writes to the president, Harry Truman, and says, you know, this, this doesn't seem fair. And so President Truman issues a decree, an order, that um, this kind of ownership should be eligible for federally guaranteed home loans. So it's not just that they were intentionally integrated. It's that they kind of struck a blow for integration. Let's, let's make it possible 
for this sort of place to get federally guaranteed home loans. That, of course, comes before, that's in the late 40s, Gene Werheim builds, uh, starts building in the neighborhood in the early 50s. And then the third way that it's distinguished is its passive solar. Her first job was with Keck and Keck. We've talked a lot about the Keck brothers, who were really the pioneers of passive solar building in the Midwest. That's where uh, you're generally, or houses, buildings, houses generally oriented toward the south, and you have roof overhangs that block the sun when it's up in the high, up, high up in the sky in the summer, so that it doesn't warm the interior too much because you didn't have air conditioning. But these overhangs are built such that when the sky is low in the winter, the sun still comes in from the south and warms the space. Very simple, uh, very, uh, but, but innovative for the time. And this house, Gene Werheim designed as passive solar. So it's designed by a woman in the 50s in an intentionally race-blind area, and it's passive solar. It already went under contract. Within days, it's already under contract. So I feel like... You know, if you live in a house with really great stories attached to it, every time someone comes to visit you, you tell them that. I think so. So your dinner parties at this house will be fascinating because you have a lot of big topics to dig into right off the bat. Yeah. You're, yeah. You don't have to get into like the bears and the weather because you've, all, you've right. got race and sexism right. and architecture all to talk about. Right. Someone's like, oh, what a lovely home. Thank you. And then 45 minutes later, you're like, exactly. so anyway, exactly. where do you guys live? <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. I love a house like that. And when a house like that comes along, I mean, this is why I like to write about how there's so much history Im- embedded in that house. And I love it when we have, I mean, just like the, the um, Spanish villa in, in Gray's Lake, these houses, like they've been through something. And it's great to be able to to preserve them. This one, and by the way, speaking of preservation, this is unlikely, the real estate agent said, to be demolished. It's it's not in great condition. So one of my questions for her was, is somebody going to demolish this? And she said, there haven't really been many teardowns in the neighborhood. So it seems very likely that somebody rehabs it, which would be great news. Sure. You want to hang on to stories like that, for sure. All right. Well, let's talk about a condo on North State Parkway now. Yeah, boy, we're talking about some gorgeous stuff. It's been a great week for beautiful architecture. This condo really is one of my absolute favorites in terms of looks, I mean, aesthetics, in the entire city. I've been in it several times when it's been on the market in the past. Um, It's on North State Parkway. A lot of people know just north of Division, there's this beautiful white brick. I always call it a hat box. It looks like it's two stories high, and it's kind of oval, and it has these wonderful slits in it. That is the entrance to um, what was called the Fisher Studio Houses. A Marshall Fields executive um, named Frank Fisher commissioned Andrew Rabori in the 1930s to create essentially uh, a rental property for him. When you walk in through that hat box, it looks like you're walking into a solid building. You're actually just passing through a gateway. And then uh, you walk down through a long courtyard where there are uh, or there were apartments to your side and other condos. But you walk all the way through to Frank's own unit at the far end. It's like book bookends, the hat box on one end and his on the other, where the curves and the glass um, and the stained glass and the carvings, it's just, it's truly exquisite. So you come up from the first floor, the main living is on the second floor, and um, there's this clever thing that Rabori did. At the time, 
glass block, you know, you think of glass block as kind of a cliche from 90s houses and that sort of thing. But it was brand new technology, very um, stylish in the 30s. And this rear unit that Frank Fisher is going to live on is in the alley. Or I'm sorry, isn't in the alley. It faces the alley. All the others are lined up along the lot. So you've walked all the way back to a unit that's on the alley. So what Rabori does is he creates these huge walls of glass block in the living room, there's one that goes up two stories, just this stack of glass block so that you get all that light that comes in from the alley, but you don't see, you know, the garbage trucks and things like that. It's so nice. You do still have windows on the other side of the unit. You look out over the courtyard and you hear the fountain, but this looks like a movie set for the 1930s because you've got, um, so you've, you have curved walls, uh, that two-story uh, wall of glass block there's sort of an overlook from the what would be the second. Uh, you live on the second and third floors. So from the third floor down to the second, there's this overlook. So you really see all the glass block. The staircase, you've seen the photo, Amy. The staircase, to me, it looks like a woman in a slinky dress. It's this incredible curve that comes down. It's just fabulous. Made more fabulous by these sellers because when they bought it, uh, so it was, I said, you live on the second and third floors. There was a studio apartment above on what would be the fourth floor that the previous owners had bought, but hadn't really done the connection. So these owners went in and they, they extend, they made it into a three-story unit on two, three, and four that gains them on four, a rooftop deck, but making the connection means they move the laundry room, they do other things, but they also have to, that staircase was so nice you better not mess up extending it one flight up. And they didn't. They used an architect, um, Paul Florian, who does great work, who he didn't exactly imitate what Rabori had done, but he also has this sort of curving staircase, um, beautiful white plaster walls, uh, lighted niches running um, vertically in the walls so that now your progression all the way up those stairs is, I mean, it's like a religious experience. It's so nice. And then you get to the top and you have, as I said, a rooftop deck, which they wouldn't have had before. Before it would have been this little one bedroom. I think I said it was a studio, but it was a little one bedroom apartment with a rooftop deck. Now that that is a piece of the unit below. It's the the colors of the stained glass are so nice. It's very modernist stained glass. It's not like it's not renderings of saints or anything like that. It's very geometrical and it... Um, and I guess I would say restrained because it doesn't fill the whole window. Really, truly a remarkable place. Um, the people who bought it are architecture fans, and they essentially bought it because they thought it was so cool. Uh, and now they're planning, as he said, another architectural adventure. So they're putting this one on the market for, it's a little over $1.28 million. You know, another detail of this house I think is so interesting, and I should say, Everybody should head to chicagobusiness.com to see pictures of all of these houses that we're looking at. Um, but what they've done with the kitchen, I think, is really creative here because it's all this stainless steel. And normally that looks very harsh and very commercial and utilitarian, but it's got glass shelves in front of some windows that look like frosted windows that makes it look very fancy and very, you know, it just, it looks very elegant that way. Whereas normally if you have an all stainless steel kitchen, it's just going to look like the commercial kitchen behind the restaurant. Right. But it doesn't at all. It looks actually like quite elegant that way. I think when you're in that kitchen, you could be on a train in the thirties. You could be in like a really cool club car 
um, not with the big overstuffed um, upholstered chairs, but a really sleek stainless steel and glass um, cocktail lounge. That's what it looks like to me. There's a lot of really cool details of this house for sure. That yeah. That and I love too the this the warmth of the flooring really kind of uh, warms up all of this space. But then you have all this light and all these cool curves and even the curved edges of the wall. It's such a you know such a cool detail. Really wonderful. And and as I said, it truly is one of my favorites. When you walk in, you feel as if you definitely feel as if you know the architecture is an art. Oh, for sure. Oh, it's like a sculptural showpiece in house form, for sure. Absolutely. And for you to name it as a favorite, like you have seen every house in the city, basically. For you to call it a favorite, you know, that's pretty high praise. Well, before I ask you what's coming up in the week ahead, we cannot get through a week without talking about one of the billionaires on our radar. So Ken Griffin's ex-wife has sold her Gold Coast condo. Tell me about this place. It was purchased when they were married. Then in their divorce, it becomes her property. This is all in the public records. And now she has sold it. So uh, Ann Diaz, formerly Ann Diaz Griffin, um, sold the property this week for uh, $2.5 million. So the loss to the sellers is more than a million dollars passed through from one legal entity uh, when they were married to another when she was divorced. And Diaz also has uh, a mansion in Lincoln Park for sale. That too is marked at a loss, bought it for over 8 million, now asking 7.9. It first came on the market at 9.5 million. And Diaz Griffin was um, divorced from Ken Griffin in about 2015. Many people remember all the sort of sensational news about it. She wasn't from here. Um, There was disagreement in the divorce about whether she'd be able to leave with the kids because of course, he was rooted here. Now, as we know, he famously has left and, and left for Miami. Uh, she has a fund. He's, he's a financial executive with running the Citadel funds. She has a fund of her own, Aragon Global Management. It, too, is, is based in Miami. So I don't really know what exactly has happened. As you can imagine, she wouldn't. I've not been able to reach her. Um, but it's interesting that this one sells at a loss because so far as we've been tracking the Ken Griffin portfolio, the two he has sold have both gone at a loss. And now she's sold one at a loss and has another uh, on the market at a loss. Um, Multiple millions being lost, but of course there are billions involved. So it's probably not a huge uh, disappointment to them. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead? Uh, I may have talked about this last week, but we now have a story coming out about um, Reverend James Meeks, who, when he retired from his megachurch in Roseland, uh, said he was going to become a home builder. Oh, so yeah. I went down to Roseland and walked around with him and talked about where are you building and what are you building? And that's that story will be out within the next few days. Great. Well, we'll talk about that and more this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a $225 million University of Chicago Life Sciences Lab project is now underway in Hyde Park. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
A major winter storm moving through the Great Plains and Upper Midwest has prompted flight delays and cancellations across much of the area. While as of Wednesday morning, the storm was forecast to track to the north of the Chicago area, sparing the city the worst of the precipitation, the ripple effect was already being felt at O'Hare, where 80 flights were already canceled as of 8.15 a.m. Wednesday morning and 35 flights canceled at Midway. As of Wednesday mid-morning, the hardest-hit airports in the region included Minneapolis-St. Paul with nearly 400 cancellations and Detroit with over 100. Milwaukee had over 70 cancellations also as of Wednesday morning. The storm caused high winds and snow as it came ashore in California and has caused additional major delays in Denver. According to flight tracking website FlightAware, Southwest Airlines had 235 cancellations by 8.15 a.m., SkyWest had 204, and Delta had 196. Shortly before 11 mid-morning Wednesday, the flight tracking website was down, according to isitdownrightnow.com. The Minneapolis-St. Paul area could see up to two feet of snow by the time the storm moves on to the New England area, where parts of New York State could also see similarly heavy snow totals. This is a developing story, though, so be sure to see the latest information about flight impacts at O'Hare and Midway at chicagobusiness.com. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that Palatine-based grill manufacturer Weber closed its deal with investment banker Byron Trotz, BDT Capital Partners, to take the company private, less than two years after BDT led the company's initial public offering. Daniels noted in reporting that Weber's last quarterly filing as a public company, filed with the SEC on February 9th, provides a striking final glimpse of just how daunting BDT's task is. Net sales in the quarter that ended December 31st dropped 42% to $165 million, down from $283 million the year before. The company reported a net loss of $114 million, 53% more than the $75 million net loss the same period in 2021. To put that quarterly loss into perspective, Daniels noted that Weber reported a net loss of $195 million for all of fiscal 2022, which ended September 30th. BDT has now agreed to lend more than $350 million to Weber on an unsecured basis to get the company through 2023. Daniels reported that job cuts at Weber in the last quarter of the year marked the first step, and that is costing Weber more than $21 million for severance and other restructuring charges, according to its quarterly filing. Debt costs are substantially higher as well, as its interest expense has nearly doubled to $29.5 million from just $15.5 million the year before. Executives from Chicago-based Kraft Heinz laid out plans for the company's next phase of growth at a packaged foods conference Tuesday morning. Crane's Ali Marotti reported that in the U.S., Kraft Heinz plans to roll out personalized sauces, Mexican packaged foods, plant-based products like mayo and cheese, and innovative packaged goods that, for example, crisp up in the microwave. Marathi further reported that the company also expects to push further into food service, with plans to collaborate with more chefs and partner with chicken brands to test new sauces. It's also working with companies that provide school lunches and said it expects to roll out its Lunchables product in K-12 schools later this year. 
Marathi also noted that July will mark four years since CEO Miguel Patricio took the helm at Kraft Heinz. He brought with him plans to reinvigorate a portfolio of packaged food products and said Tuesday morning that his plan is working. With net sales on some of the company's biggest brands like Mac and Cheese, Philadelphia, Heinz Ketchup and the aforementioned Lunchables, up 9% from 2019. Marathi further reported that growth has come from investment in marketing and innovation at the company, two areas that Kraft Heinz says they plan to continue to focus on. Experts have said those skills will be key for packaged food giants as they work to keep customers from drifting away to private label brands. Marathi previously reported that the pandemic also helped drive new customers to Kraft Heinz and other packaged food brands as more people were forced to eat at home more often during restaurant closures. At the same time, many gravitated toward big, well-known brands as they reportedly sought comfort and nostalgia during that time. Construction is set to start on a long-sought lab for life sciences in Hyde Park. Crane's John Pletz reported that Hyde Park Labs, a 14-story facility with nine floors of lab space near 52nd and Harper, will be anchored by the University of Chicago. The $225 million project is a joint venture of developers Trammell Crow and Beacon Capital Partners. Pletz also noted that the more than 302,000-square-foot building is breaking ground after several years of strong growth that made biotech and life sciences one of the strongest sectors in commercial real estate. Pletz noted that unlike technology and other types of office work, life sciences research doesn't really lend itself very well to remote work. There are a half dozen such lab projects planned in Chicago from Bronzeville to Evanston. Dallas-based Trammell Crow has built two lab facilities in Fulton Market in the past three years and has another in the works in Evanston. Its partner in the Hyde Park Labs project, Beacon Capital Partners, based in Boston, has lab projects underway in its hometown, as well as in New York, Houston, and San Francisco. Dan Lin, a senior vice president at CBRE who is marketing and leasing Hyde Park Labs, told Cranes, quote, Chicago continues to be a top 10 life science cluster in the U.S. Pletz also reported that the University of Chicago has pre-leased 55,000 square feet or about one and a half floors of the Hyde Park Labs building. Researchers from the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering will take some of that space, while additional square footage will be used for an incubator for life sciences startups. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.